Our scripture reading is taken from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'm reading from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. I do solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word of God. Never lose your sense of urgency, in season or out of season. Prove, correct, and encourage, using the utmost patience in your teaching. For the time is coming when men will not tolerate wholesome teaching, They will want something to tickle their own fancies, and they will collect teachers who will pander to their own desires. They will no longer listen to the truth, but will wander off after man-made fictions. For yourself, stand fast in all that you are doing, meeting whatever suffering this may involve. Go on steadily preaching the gospel and carry out to the full the commission that God gave you. As for me, I feel the last drops of my life are being poured out for God. The time for my departure has arrived. The glorious fight that God gave me, I have fought. The course that I was set, I have finished. And I have kept the faith. The future for me holds the crown of righteousness, which God, the true judge, will give to me at that day, and not, of course, only to me, but to all those who love what they have seen of him. Do your best to come to me as soon as you can. Demas, loving this present world, I fear, has left me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus is away in Delmata. Only Luke is with me now. When you come, pick up Mark and bring him with you. I can certainly find a job for him here. I had to send Tychicus off to Ephesus, and please bring with you the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, the books, and especially the parchment. Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will reward him for what he did. I should be very careful of him if I were you. He has been an obstinate opponent of our teaching. The first time I had to defend myself, no one was on my side. They all deserted me. God forgive them. Yet the Lord himself stood by me. He gave me strength to proclaim the message clearly and fully so that the Gentiles could hear it, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I am sure the Lord will rescue me from every evil plot and will keep me safe until I reach his heavenly kingdom. Glory be to him forever and ever. Amen. Give my love to Prisca and Aquila and Onesiphorus and his family. Erastus is still staying at Corinth, and Trophimus have I left at Miletus sick. Do your best to come before winter. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. You know, it uh, would seem like I was boasting if I told you that one of the elders of the church asked me to preach this sermon, Come Before Winter. But it's really not a boast because I stole the sermon from Clarence Edward McCartney. He's up in heaven and I want to thank him for it right now. (laughs) There are sermons that make history. And uh, this is one of them. This is a sermon that's still being printed. It uh, was a lecture actually called Acres of Diamonds. 
and it was given originally by Russell Conwell. During the American Civil War, Russell Conwell was an agnostic, and he had a young orderly, a corporal, who was assigned to take care of him. Conwell was a captain. And uh, this orderly was a very devout Christian. He read his Bible, he prayed, and uh, he often prayed that his superior officer would become a Christian. One day, in a very severe battle, a sniper stood to fire at Captain Cromwell, uh, Conwell, Russell Conwell. And this little orderly, a corporal, placed his body in front of his commanding officer and received a bullet which would have killed Russell Conwell. Conwell was so moved by the sacrifice of this man in saving his life that it caused him in going through his pitiful possessions to look at a little copy of the New Testament. And he began to read it. And through his reading of it, he became a Christian. And later, he developed this tremendous sermon of his called Acres of Diamonds that demonstrates what great opportunities God gives to us uh, in life. Uh, in the course of preaching this lecture, he collected over $4 million, which was used to establish the uh, Temple University, really, and the Conwell School of Theology. It was a very uh, great contribution. This is another one of the sermons that have made history. It is on the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It was written by Henry Drummond. Henry Drummond was a student at New College at the University of Edinburgh, when Dwight Lyman Moody and Ira D. Sankey uh, came to hold a series of revival meetings in the city of Edinburgh. The Scots were very critical of the American evangelist and uh, his uh, singer. They did not wish to cooperate at first and uh, wouldn't cooperate. And uh, two of the young theological students, one whose name was James Stalker and the other, Henry Drummond, went one night to criticize. And they sat and listened to Dwight L. Moody preach. And uh, when he had finished the service and had given an invitation for people who were inquirers and who wished to find Christ as Savior, Moody, in his wonderful, warm, and friendly way, walked over to these two students from New College at Edinburgh University, and he said, here are some people who want to find Christ. And he said, won't you help them? And they said, no, that they did not believe in that kind of evangelism, and so they haughtily went away. When they got back to their digs on Lonsdale Terrace, uh, I used to live on that street in Edinburgh. They began to think about what had happened. And James Stalker, when they got down to say their prayers that night, when he finished his prayers, he turned to uh, his friend Henry Drummond. And he said, uh, Henry, we did something that was very wrong tonight. He said, those Americans were trying to lead people to a faith 
in Jesus Christ. And that man asked us to help, and we refused to help simply because we were offended uh, by their method. The very next night, these two made their way and were first at the hall where Moody and Sankey were conducting the revival services. And James Stalker, great scholar that he later became, an authority on the life of Christ and the life of Paul, he and Henry Drummond went and apologized to Mr. Moody for what they had uh, said to him the night before and offered to help in any way that they could in the services that week. Well, Henry Drummond was so fascinated with uh, Dwight L. Moody that he left his studies at New College at the University of Edinburgh, the Divinity Hall, and he followed Moody and helped him in conducting services for young men. Uh, one night, some years later, when Moody was preaching in the city of London, he had uh, preached several times that day, and they were staying in the uh, large home of some people who had a great estate, and uh, the person in whose home they stayed asked Mr. Moody if he would lead them in prayers before they went to bed. And so Moody said, I am just preached out. And he turned to Henry Drummond and said, Henry, why don't you read something from the Bible and say a word and... Uh, then we'll all turn in for the night. And Henry Drummond reached into his uh, pocket and he pulled out his little pocket New Testament and he read the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that chapter where Paul speaks uh, of love as the greatest thing in the world. And Henry Drummond read that chapter and when he had finished reading it, he made some comments about it and when he had finished making his comments, he looked at Moody, and Moody had great hot tears streaming down his face, and Mr. Moody said to Henry Drummond, Henry, go immediately to your room, and while it's fresh in your mind, write down what you've said. That's the finest thing that I've ever heard in my life on that chapter in 1 Corinthians. And so Henry Drummond went and he wrote down the greatest thing in the world, he later came to Northfield, Massachusetts, uh, after which Montreat was copied. It was a conference center where there was also a college conducted in the wintertime. And he gave there uh, uh, that famous talk, The Greatest Thing in the World. And it's still in print. These uh, books are, are brand new. You can still buy them. They're uh, elegant editions that are out. So those are two very famous sermons. There are many other in history. Uh, one that caused a sensation in colonial times was a sermon that had to do with the wrath and the judgment of God. A sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in it, Jonathan Edwards preached with such power, though he had to read the manuscript of his sermon, that the people stood up in the church and shouted out to Jonathan Edwards, Mr. Edwards, Mr. Edwards, is there any way that we can be saved? And Jonathan Edwards, by that sermon on the wrath of God, paved the way for George Whitfield, who later came to America and began to preach. And a great awakening, as it was called, burst forth in colonial America. 
and out of it came many good things. Uh, down in Savannah, Georgia, you can still see the place where the first orphanage, the first uh, uh, institution of mercy of that nature uh, in uh, North America, uh, where it was planted uh, by George Whitfield. He, uh, by the way, had an interesting relationship with Benjamin uh, Franklin. Franklin was not a Christian, but he was quite an admirer of George Whitfield, and he used to go and to hear Whitfield preach. And so these are some of the great sermons. Now, our lesson today comes from a great sermon by a Presbyterian minister, and it happens to come on the Sunday which we call Reformation Sunday, in which we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. It's a simple message, and maybe that's why we remember it so long and why so many of us have profited uh, from it. Martin Luther uh, was a great uh, man. Luther, uh, who's been gone to be with Jesus for over four and a half centuries now, Martin Luther uh, said these words which I like to quote to people who criticize a simple sermon. Luther said, when I preach, I regard neither the doctors nor magistrates of whom I have above 40 in the congregation. I have all my eyes on the servants and the maids and the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. <laughs> that, that's Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, I was thinking about all these good people that have been mentioned who are sick. By the way, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Shirley and Ms. Hall are in St. Joseph's Hospital, and I saw Ms. Bell over at Memorial Mission. She's still got that wonderful twinkle in her eye. Uh, and uh, uh, so many uh, friends of ours seem to be sick just at this time. And uh, I, I was thinking about that a while ago and remembering what Martin Luther once said. Uh, about the, the, the devil. Martin Luther said that the sweetest words in the Bible were actually spoken by the devil. And uh, they were spoken when the devil, uh, uh, Satan, had come before God, and uh, God said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none in all the earth like him. And uh, Satan said to God, Yea, thou hast built a hedge about him. And so said Luther, It is important to remember that the devil is God's devil, <laughs> and that the devil can never get through the hedge and touch or afflict apart from the permissive will of God in doing so. And so we need to remember that, that God uh, uh, teaches us some lessons. Sometimes they're a little rough. I heard an old boy at a prayer meeting one time who was a carpenter giving his testimony. And uh, he said that, uh, uh, I don't know how much you know about woodworking, but if you, if you use sandpaper, the coarsest sandpaper is double-aught sandpaper. And that really takes all the rough stuff off. And this fellow got up and gave his testimony. He'd had a lot of afflictions with his health and his business. And he said, the Lord has been using a lot of double-aught sandpaper on me lately. And I'll be glad when he gets down to something smoother. 
<laughs> and uh, so some of us feel that way at times. Well, on October the 10th, 1915, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Char uh, Clarence Edward McCartney was in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, he, uh, uh, he was a pastor of the Arch Street Presbyterian Church. Located not far away was Jefferson Medical College. Uh, some fine doctors have graduated from that school. And uh, so Dr. McCartney was asked to go to this medical college, Jefferson Medical College, and uh, give a chapel talk. They had chapel in medical schools even in those days. And uh, so Clarence McCartney went down and it was an autumn day, October the 10th, and he noticed all of the beautiful foliage. He noticed the orange and the reds and the yellows and the browns and the varied colored leaves that he saw. And he began to think about the uh, clear blue sky and the haze of the Indian summer. And he began to think about the changes that take place in life. And he had been reading through Paul's last letter. It was a letter that he had written to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And in that letter that he writes to Timothy, he writes from a prison cell in Rome. And he writes it uh, going through some difficult and trying circumstances. He is now Paul the aged. He is an old man. And his body has been battered and scarred in his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He writes to Timothy, who is in the city of Ephesus, and he sends a letter to Timothy, and twice in the fourth, uh, we, in, in the last part of the letter, the chapter headings were not there, but in verse 9 and in verse 21, he speaks twice to Timothy to come shortly to me. In other words, it's urgent for Timothy to come. He wanted to see him. You can tell a lot about your friends when you pass through a time of adversity. In fact, the Romans used to have a saying that adversity is the only balance on which to weigh your friends. You can tell who your friends really are when you go through a period of sickness, or through a period of trouble. Uh, and so here is Paul in Rome. He has a premonition that he will never see another autumn. And autumn is setting in in Rome and he is cold. And so he writes to Timothy to come to him. He gives him words of encouragement, but he wants most of all to see his face. He tells Timothy that only Luke is with me. Now, Luke was a Greek physician, and a physician is usually the first person that we see when we are born into the world, the doctor who delivers us, and often the last person who looks upon us when we pass into eternity. And only Luke is with me. Luke, the beloved physician, as Paul refers to him, Luke was with him. And uh, he speaks of Demas who has forsaken him, having loved this present world. And then Paul remembered an old grudge that he had had with John Mark. And he said, take Mark and bring him here, because I can use a man like him now 
Bring him with you when you come to me. Uh, Paul uh, has a forgiving spirit. He had been short-tempered with Mark, and uh, now he wishes to have Mark uh, come to him. Well, here Paul is in prison. He writes, Luke is with him. He wants uh, Timothy to come, and he gives him instructions to go uh, when he comes through Troas to take a ship that will bring him to Samothrace and uh, across the Mediterranean and uh, to Neapolis and finally through the Appian Way up to Rome. He tells him to go to the house of Carpus and to get his winter coat and to bring it uh, to him. Dr. Mitchell has been here today, and he said to me, your son Sam said to send his heavy coat up to uh, Wheaton uh, in Illinois. It's getting cold up there. Well, Paul says it's beginning to get cold here in Rome, so go by uh, a carpus house and get my uh, cloak that's there, my heavy winter cloak, and bring it with you when you come. And uh, he says to him, do thy diligence to come before winter. Now this is the point. Why before winter? Well, he is to come before winter because if he does not leave immediately to come to Paul, he may go to the port and find out that the time for sailing is past. Because the Mediterranean, as we know when we read about that shipwreck in the book of Acts, can become a terrible, terrible sea when the winter storms came and there would be no sailing, no vessels that would go toward Rome. And uh, so Timothy must go quickly. And Dr. McCartney said, what would it be if Timothy had gone down to uh, the port city and had looked for a ship that would go across the Mediterranean, and someone said to him, there are no more ships leaving until spring. The winter season is set in, and the storms are tossing the sea. There's no more ships until the springtime comes. Timothy might have spent a long, hard winter reading over and over that letter that he had received from Paul, telling him, do thy diligence to come shortly to me. Come before winter. And yet he had let that vessel get away, and he hadn't gone. And then Dr. McCartney, in his imagination, says that Timothy cannot wait until spring comes and as soon as April arrives he goes to the port and he asks if he can take the very next vessel that is headed toward Rome and he gets a vessel that is going uh, toward Neapolis from which he can take the Appian Way and go on into Rome and when he gets there he makes his way through the gigantic city of Rome and he comes to the old Mamerton prison and he asks the guard there if he can see the prisoner Paul, the Hebrew Paul. And the guard says, we have no prisoner here by that name, and curses at him and tells him to go away. Timothy remembered the names that are written at the bottom of that letter, Linus and Claudius and Eubulus. And so he seeks out some of these Christians in Rome, and he knocks on Linus' door and says, Where's Paul? 
And they said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am Timothy. And they said, Oh, Timothy. Timothy. Don't you know that Paul was beheaded last December? That Nero had him executed? That the last things that he ever said was, Give Timothy my love. He wanted to see you more than any other person in all the world. Well, now, that's just imagination. We don't know that that happened. But why Dr. McCartney stressed this is that there are certain things that if we do not do them now, before another October comes, we may never have an occasion to do them again. And so he stresses to us to listen to listen to the voice of God calling to us to reform our characters. Not to put off until tomorrow certain things that we would and should do today, but to take advantage of the opportunity that we have now. Shakespeare has a famous line, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day till all our yesterdays have lighted fools the dusty road to death. Thomas Carlyle, one of the greatest figures in all of English literature, and as long as the English language is read, people will have to read Thomas Carlyle and study his style. Carlyle was a man of irascible temperament, and he was often very bitter and hard on his wife, Jane Welch Carlyle. She is buried in Haddington Cemetery in Scotland. She died in 1866. And after her death, Thomas Carlyle used to go to her grave and weep. And they say that in Carlyle's diaries, the most pathetic things in the diary are when that great man of genius and literature says, Oh God, if only I had Jane back again and I could tell her that I am sorry for all the things that I said and did that hurt her if I only had her back just for five minutes by my side. You see, there are things that we need to do while we have the opportunity uh, to do them. Uh, when you have an opportunity to extend a good word, then do it. When you have an opportunity to help a person who is in need, some friends have been mentioned today who have needs, then help them, for God's sake help them, and for your own sake help them. There is that which we must do. There are people who put off. They put off listening to the voice that would cause them to come to Christ. I remember once a man who was a deputy sheriff in Texas. I played football with his son, and his son had some admiration for me because of, of football. 
And this man who had been this deputy sheriff who was not a very admirable character, his wife had died and his boy had taken to drink and he drove one day to my house and he came to me and said, will you go and talk to Billy? He knows that you are a preacher now and that you're preaching in this town. He won't listen to me anymore, but maybe if you would go and speak to him, he would change his way. I've changed mine, but I've lost my influence with my son. You see, there are opportunities that we must not neglect, but we must take them while we have the opportunity to accept them. This is the grace of God that extends to us another autumn, and we should use it to his glory. We should use it to his glory and take advantage of it and do the thing that will bring honor to him. Many a man has been fettered and bound by some habit who had an opportunity to break with that habit and to reform his character, and to change. But he didn't. Robert Louis Stevenson died out in the Pacific on an island. He met there a missionary from Scotland, a godly minister who had a great and good effect upon him. And Robert Louis Stevenson, who had done some things in his lifetime of which he was not proud at all, said to this minister, one day, oh, if I had only met you 20 years ago, how different my life would be. Well, the voice of Christ is speaking today, and the voice of Christ is saying, come before winter. Come before the haze of Indian summer has faded from the fields. Come before the November winds and rains strip the leaves from their trees and send them swirling across the fields. Come before the snow lies in the uplands. Come before the streams are turned frozen to ice. Come before desire has failed. Come before life is over and your probation is ended and you stand before God to give an account of the use you have made of the opportunities which in his grace he has given to you. Come before winter. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, when we walk outside and see the marvelous majesty with which thou hast painted the hills, and as we see the leaves beginning to be stripped away from the trees, and we know that soon another winter will set in,
We pray that you will help us to make good use of the opportunities that we have and that you will forgive us for the time which has been ill-spent and wrongly used and that you will restore unto us the years which the locust and the canker worm hath eaten. We pray, O God, our Father, that you will accept even now those who in the secret place of their heart ask you to forgive them for their sins and ask you to enter into their hearts and to change their lives. Father, you know that there are some people to whom we should make a telephone call some to whom we should write a letter, some old grudges that ought to be settled and put away. We pray that you will lead us to do those things which will bring honor to your name by showing the love of Jesus to every single person that we can. Help us to hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Help us to come before winter. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with each one of us, now and forevermore. Amen.